you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Judges once again. We're in Judges 6 this morning, and if you're using a pew Bible, if you don't have your own copy of God's Word, I encourage you to use one of those Bibles that are in the pews in front of you so that you can follow along. That is on page 205, Judges 6. If you ever get addicted or or um, you feel like you have to watch the next episode of one of these television dramas, do you know what it feels like to come to the end of the season and they leave you on this cliffhanger? And they do that on purpose so that you come back next season and you demand that they get another season because they've got you trapped now. I remember as a little kid, we were always dismissed into a back room when my parents and friends would come over to watch Dallas. But I do remember the summer that was off, who shot JR? It was all summer, right? It was a cliffhanger. Well, last week, as Carson finished up in Judges chapter 5, there was certainly a cliffhanger, but I don't know if you noticed it. Perhaps you heard him speak to us about real biblical worship that's displayed here in chapter number 5 with Deborah. It's kind of a different praise and worship song. It's talking about jail with the nail. He called her a psychopath, and I didn't disagree. But here at the end of that song, there's just a little bit of narration. And you'll notice in verse number 31, the end of verse 31 of chapter 5, will you just look at those words with me? And the land had rest for how many years? How many? Forty years. So we're going to look at Gideon now. He's the second most popular judge that we're going to look at in the book of Judges. There's 12 different judges that are taught to us in the book. The other one that's maybe more famous is Samson. But actually, though Samson has more chapters, Gideon has more verses. So Gideon wins the verse battle, and there's more verses given about Gideon than even about Samson. But here, before we hear about this very famous judge, Gideon, we're told that for 40 years after they had been rescued by Deborah and Barak, there was peace in the land. So here's the thing you need to know. Before we read our text, Gideon has basically grown up in peace. He didn't know the struggle. Even though the children of Israel were obviously going back to the false gods. They were returning and doing evil in the sight of God. It was kind of under the radar because they were not being oppressed. For 40 years, they had blessing. And sometimes people interpret blessings as God must be happy with me. If life is comfortable and the checking account is filled, God's just been blessing me. And one wonders if Gideon's generation had kind of been lulled into, life is good. There are no trials, not much suffering. Certainly no one is trying to put us under their thumb and bondage. This is the world that Gideon grew up in. Now sometimes those dramas, when they start the new season, this always frustrates me. It's obvious that the writer of this television drama is trying to add something to the story and so they'll say two years later. Have you ever seen that? So the opening episode for the new season, it may say two years later. It may say four years later. But for this episode, as we return to the season of the judges, you need to know it's 40 years later. 
Keep that in mind. Let's begin our reading in verse number one. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yawn, yawn. That's not in the text, but we see this cycle. Now, what we don't see here is the word again. That's important, actually. So far, we've seen this cycle, and it keeps saying again, again, again. No again. The Holy Spirit didn't forget that word. It's intentionally not there. One wonders if they had followed hard after God, would there have not been another cycle? Could Judges have ended at chapter 5? Wouldn't that have been glorious? If you know anything about the rest of Judges, you should give us an amen there. It would have been glorious if it had ended in chapter 5. But it doesn't. They did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number, both they and their camels could not be counted. Now understand that in this time period, to have camels, camels was actually a really new item in warfare. So the Amalekites and the Midianites and these people from the east are, are really coming in and they're pillaging. They're like locusts. And then we're told that their camels couldn't be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Now, a little later, we're going to see this in the text. Gideon is confused about why so many bad things are happening. Which tells us in this text, here's what's taking place. The children of Israel once again have gone right back to Baal worship. They had 40 years of peace, but in the midst of those 40 years, they had returned right back to the vomit, right back to the idolatry. And because there was no swift consequence, it appears that there become lethargy and apathy amongst the people of God. Nothing bad is happening, so therefore God must be what? Happy with us. But we're told here, actually, they were doing evil in whose sight? In the all-seeing, omniscient eyes of Jehovah, they were sinning repeatedly. And that repetition of sin was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, I want to give you a few points here, and hopefully you got a handout just to write these down. If you don't, here's the first point we see in this act that is, actually covers three chapters. So over the next three weeks, next three Sundays, chapter 6 is the great despair. Chapter 7 is going to deal with the great hope, and chapter 8 is going to deal with the great letdown. But here we're in the great despair. Here's what's taking place. This is different than the other types of invasions from these Canaanite countries. You'll notice that instead of coming in politically and trying to take over the land and make the children of Israel the servants and the slaves, they're actually waiting till harvest time and they're coming down and pillaging and taking all of their produce and their cattle. Now for a society, and they all were like this, that were agrarian and they lived for and lived by all of their production, This was placing the children of Israel in a horrible spot. They became so agitated, knowing that as soon as it was harvest time, the Midianites, which were a far cousin, distant cousin from Israel, 
He was the third son of Abraham and Keturah. Keturah is the wife of Abraham after Sarah had died. The third son was Midian. The Midianites had a very bad relationship with the Israelites. They were always looking to invade or insult or cause life to be difficult. And the Amalekites, we've already heard about them, they were always, if somebody wanted to attack Israel, they just wanted to join in for fun. And there was another group from the east. And if you can imagine, every time the harvest is ready, they come down and steal it all. So all the sheep, all the goats, all the beef, all the crops, they take it away. It was so bad that the children of Israel had to leave their homes and their villages and start living in caves and living in dens so that they could have some preparation for when they would come down and try to steal their crops. This is a very difficult situation. And we're, we read in verse number six that they begin to what? Cry out for what? Help, please help. But I want you to see that when we're in difficulty and trial, we need to ask the right questions, and they're not. Later on, Gideon's going to say, if you really are a good God, why are these bad things happening to us? And here you'll notice that there's actually a reason why the bad things are happening at this moment. Look at verse 2. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. But look at that, verse 1, actually. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and who gave them into the hand of Midian? Please look at it. Who gave them into the hand of Midian? The Lord did. You see, they at this point are not asking the right question. Now, we just left the glorious mountaintop of Romans 8 a few weeks ago. And we said that two things cause us to doubt our security in Christ. One is our struggle with indwelling sin, our ongoing struggle with these sinful habits that we have. The other struggle that causes us to doubt our security in Christ is trials, difficulties, suffering. But there are some sufferings, some trials that are self-caused. There are actually consequences for sinful choices, and it's a category that doesn't mean that God doesn't love us, but his love is actually the one and the motive behind the consequence coming into our lives to wake us up, to free us from our idolatry. So I want us to ask the right questions, and here are a couple really good questions that we're always kind of asking. Number one, what in the world is God doing in my life? <laughs> Anybody been asking that lately? What in the world are you doing in my life, God? That's an often question that we ask. But here's another question that's probably a little more important. How in the world does he call me to respond in my life? Now, I want you to turn in your Bibles real quickly to a New Testament passage that speaks about this, to Hebrews chapter 12. And if you have a pew Bible, that is on page 1009. Will you turn over there real quickly? And I've got a place in your handout where you can either do it now or do it later. But if I were asking you, and I'm asking you this, I'm not if I were, I am asking you this. If you were to write down in a paragraph form right now, how is God showing his love to you right now? What would you write down? Maybe you don't want to write it down right now. Maybe you can just think of what you would write down and what you'll write down later. But here's the question. How do you know and see and sense experientially God's love for you right now? Now, once you have that answer in your mind or you've written it down, I, I want you to think this way. 
did any of us write down the way I know God's loving me right now is he is chastening me. He's disciplining me. He's freeing my heart from idolatry. And it's painful, but I know it's because he loves me. Sometimes as Christians, we can take a Romans 8 message like we had a few, few weeks ago, and our thought pattern can be this. Trials are never, ever the result of my own sin. Now, Job had some friends like a like broken record, right? The reason why you're having this suffering is because of your what? Your sin, your sin, your sin, your sin. It was almost like a song. And they were wrong. It wasn't because of Job's sin. It was because God was testing his servant Job. But there are moments because of our own rebellion and our own idolatry and our own sinful, selfish choices that God in his great love sends the Midianites. And I want you to see this in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, and here's the question, how in the world does he call me to respond to this in my life? Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse number five. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he what? And chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which you all have participated, then when you're illegitimate children and not sons, Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more respect the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his what? Say it with me again, share his what? What does God want you to share in, and why does he allow his chastening, loving discipline to come into our lives from time to time? Because he wants us to share in his what? His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems what? Come on, say it. Painful. <laughs> My dad used to say it right before he would discipline me. This hurts me more than it. And I would say, I don't believe you, dad. I wouldn't say it, but I was thinking it. And then I became a dad, and it's true. You discipline your children, hopefully not out of wrath. You discipline your children because you love them and you want to save them and rescue them from their own sinful patterns. And what he's saying, earthly fathers do that, and we're sinful. But our heavenly father, who is all love and all kindness and all grace and all holiness and he has our best interest in mind and he's purposed to make us just like his son it is painful for a season it's not pleasant but later it yields the peaceable fruit of what of righteousness to those who've been trained by it we get our word gymnastics from this word trained he's saying that discipline that god brings into our lives is an indicator first of all that you are his what his child and it has a purpose. The purpose is by allowing it to have its free course. Let it exercise you. Don't resist it in anger and questioning and accusing God. But ask the question, what is he trying to reveal in my life? So turn back, please, to Judges chapter number 6. 
the right question that should have been asked by God's people is, why did the Midianites come? God actually takes credit for it. We're always asking these questions. What in the world is God doing in my life? And secondly, how in the world does he call me to respond to this in my life? And that's a question we ought to ask more. But there's some of us this morning that we could trace, like, like connecting the dots to a present suffering or difficulty or trial or anguish that's keeping you up at night, you could trace that to a sin that you have refused to confess and repent. And the right question is not always, the answer is not always because we've sinned, but folks, sometimes the answer because God allows and sends the Midianites is because we have rebelled against him and because his great love, he is rescuing us from that idolatry. This is not a real popular message, though, and that brings us to the second point. God sends a sermon before a savior. Now, this is different than the normal cycle. Look at it in verse number seven. The people cried, help, God! And they needed help. Look at verse seven. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a what? Please don't miss this. If you haven't been reading along, you need to see this. This is like sweet irony. You call for rescue and you get a preacher. <laughs> okay, folks, imagine, oh, hopefully only imagine, that you're in a car accident or you have a house fire and you call 911 and they send the preacher over. What's your response gonna be? What are you doing here? <laughs> I want a fireman and I want him now. I want a medic, I want, I want EMS, I want EMT right now. I, do, I don't want a preacher. But that's because they were asking the wrong question. The wrong question was, or the wrong request was, we want rescue from our pain, we don't want to repent from our what? Our sin. Look what happens here. Since the prophet and the people of Israel, we don't even know his name, he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt, I brought you out of the house of slavery, I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my what? My voice. This is like the sermon that didn't have a conclusion. <laughs> he just says, this is what I've done and this is what you've done. We made a covenant. I've been faithful to my covenant. You've been unfaithful to yours. Now, folks, what about these moments of trial when God sends a sermon before he sends a rescue? How do we respond to that? The scriptures tell us that there is coming a time, and I believe we're living in it in some ways, where there will be people, and it seems in the context, those who, who are people of God, that, that have this itching ear problem, and they want speakers to scratch it. Give us sweet, sweet lies. Maybe little lies. Give us something that will make us feel good about ourselves. But don't be an Elijah. Remember what Ahab said when he showed up after a long time being absent? He couldn't find him anywhere. When he finally sees him, he says, there's the troubler of Israel. Now, what was Elijah troubling Israel? He was just preaching the truth. 
Have we gotten to the folks, folks, have we gotten to the place where we have enjoyed so much comfort in this country that it has led into a spiritual laziness and lethargy where we allow sins to be unchecked in our hearts and in our families without any real blushing. There was a time where that wouldn't be allowed. There would be a tinge of conscience that would pierce us. But we've become so comfortable that we are like these people. We've had blessings for so many years, we don't even know what it's like not to have the blessings. And so we assume if God keeps giving me money and comfort and, and entertainment, everything must be what? Okay. But God sends them what they really need. Before they get rescue, they get what? A prophet. And his message has three points, basically. Every good gift you have is from God. Here's the message we need to hear. What will cause us to stop or, or not worship the created thing rather than the creator? Remembering that every good gift and perfect gift is coming from God with whom there is no changing, no shadow of turning. The second point he gives is, I redeemed you, I own you, you're mine. His final point is, I haven't turned, you have. Now, here's the wonderful message of hope. I know this is dark, the first two points are like, ah. But sometimes when we go through trials, and we can trace them like we should, we should ask this question, is there a reason why this is in my life? Is God trying to get my attention? Is he trying to free my heart from idolatry and from living for the things that are horizontal rather than the things that are vertical and eternal? But once we ask that question, sometimes as Christians, we start thinking that this discipline means God has turned his back on me. But do you see this passage is actually the opposite? God, rather than turning his back on his people, has turned his face straight toward them. And he's coming with a disciplined hand, but he only disciplines those he what? He loves Dear folks, rather than seeing the chastening hand of God as something that is altogether negative, that he has turned his back on you in disgust because you failed him once more, realize that he's never turned himself so facing you as in the moment where he's disciplining us. So he, we should ask the right questions. He sends a sermon before his Savior, but I want to ask another question. You call this a leader? <laughs> Look what happens in verse 11. He is going to deliver them. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under Terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, that's Gideon's father. He was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you. You should mark this. He says it three times. Gideon, you really are nothing. He's going to admit he's nothing in a minute. He's nothing even close to a valiant warrior. But because the Lord is with him, he's going to be used to deliver God's people. Oh, mighty man of valor, he calls him. And Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has what? Forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Now, folks, please, did you see what Gideon... Let's imagine we're in a counseling room. All of us, we're the counselors. Gideon's on the other side of the desk. 
And he's saying, you know what? You're telling me God's at work in my life. But if God's at work in our life, why are we not getting these blessings, these blessings, these blessings? And our fathers talked about these blessings and they got these blessings and we're getting no blessings. All we're getting is getting the Midianites to come and steal all of our stuff. What are you gonna say to him? Gideon, what did the scriptures say? When God made his covenant with his people, what did he say if you go off into idolatry? What would he do? He would bring the Canaanites and they would bring you into captivity. So actually, Gideon's question shows a complete either refusal, amnesia, or ignorance to God's words. But how similar are some of us? We hear about God's blessing, but instead of having a heart-searching question about, is there a cause and effect here? We begin to say, God, what are you doing? But look at this leader who God is choosing. He says, I'll be with you. You shall strike the Midianites as one man, verse 16. And he said to him, if now I found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that you speak to with me. Now, I just want you, again, we've, we've talked a lot about Gideon. He's a very popular person and He's probably been on a lot of those flannel graphs as dare to be a Gideon, but, but there's nothing really admirable about this. This is almost comical. Because they're coming down, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people from the east, as soon as their wheat is being harvested, so they would take their winnowing fork like a pitchfork, they would throw it up in the air, they would go to a place where there was some wind, so there was a separation between the chaff and the wheat. But he's down in a wine press, and we're told he's hiding down there so that the Midianites don't see him. He's down in a wine press. If you're trying to vision a wine press, I think the closest current vision would be like a very shallow pool with no water in it. He's standing down in there. Probably all you can see is his head. You see a pitchfork coming up in the air every now and then. But he got no wind in there, so he's not being able to separate it properly between the chaff and the wheat and all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord shows up and says, Gideon, thou mighty man of valor. <laughs> and he's down there going, who's that? I mean, here's a guy who's scared to death. He's down in this pool-like cavern to, to basically separate the chaff from the wheat. And here, the angel of the Lord says, you are a mighty man of valor. There was nothing mighty or fascinating about him but here's the key. He says, the Lord is what? Is with you. Look at these five words. You'll see it in verse number um, 13. We read that. If the Lord is with us, I'm sorry, the Lord is with you in verse number 12. And then look again in verse number 16. But I will be what? With you. You see, if God is with us, we are automatically the majority, right? It is, has nothing to do with Gideon's strength his prowess at war, it has everything to do with God has chosen that he is going to use this very weak person. Gideon says, I'm actually from the smallest tribe and I'm the youngest of all of my siblings. I'm the least guy you should use. Do you remember later on there's going to be a king and he's also the youngest? He's out in the field watching the sheep. This is David. God delights in using, and we've seen this over and again in our study of Judges, he delights in using broken things because when he uses crackpots, according to 2 Corinthians 4, who gets the glory? God gets the glory. So Gideon's going to be used. You call this a leader? Well, what's going to happen is everybody's going to realize no one knew Gideon. 
We know Gideon because he's got three chapters. And Gideon's like one of the most popular judges in the book of Judges. But understand, the people of God didn't know Gideon. He was the nameless judge. They didn't even know he was going to be a judge. Here's the thing. Before they ever repent, you'll notice in verse 7, all the way to verse 10, look at the grace of our God. We have no record that once the prophet, the nameless prophet, preached a sermon, that all of them said, you're right, we're giving up our bales. But God was already selecting a rescuer. Do you see that? Don't miss that. Don't let our gospel eyes miss this, folks. This is the way it always is. God commend his love toward us and that while we were yet what? We were not coming towards God. There's not one in this room that was coming seeking after God. You say, well, I was. No, you weren't. Romans 3 says, no one seeks after God. He came in his sovereign grace seeking you. And here again, he's coming, rescuing his people. He's already given them a sermon. We don't know of any repentance, but he's already calling Gideon to be the rescuer. Fourth, there's a story of these two altars. So Gideon is a very fearful person. He has a struggle with faith. And here's another good news in a really dark sermon. <laughs> here's the good news. It doesn't appear you needed much faith to make the hall of faith. Isn't that good news? All God's people said amen. When you go to the hall of faith, we, we just are the heroes of faith. We, we often call them in Hebrews 11. We just covered that in our Bible study on Friday mornings. And sometimes you can read those names and you can start saying, man, I don't know. I could never be that. Actually, if you start studying some of these heroes, you start saying, I don't think I'll ever call them heroes again. Actually, they're not the heroes at all. The hero of the story is God, by his grace, uses people who have next to no faith, just a little mustard seed. Gideon didn't trust the Lord, and so he begins to ask for signs. His first sign is stay here. <laughs> so if you'll notice, the, the other one's very famous. This one's not as much. He, he says, will you give me this sign by staying here? Now, the angel of the Lord, I believe, is a pre-incarnate, what we call a Christophany, Jesus Christ, before he has a body at the incarnation, showing up. Now, there are a variety of reasons why I believe that is true here. You'll notice when it is, we've got the article, the angel of the Lord, and worship is given to him, or he is spoken of as Jehovah, not just Jehovah's messenger. That all happens in this passage. So I believe this is Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate, showing up to visit Gideon and commission Gideon. But what Gideon's first request is, is if this is real, don't leave. <laughs> I'm going to go get something. You stay here. And you'll notice that he agreed to it. Look at verse 18. I will stay till you return. Again, there, there are some things in this passage that I don't know if they're meant to be comical, but I just kind of chuckle because it's like, here's the big sign. Don't leave. Okay? Don't leave. Stay here. I'm going to go get my offering for the altar, and you just stay here. And he says, I'll stay. Verse 19, so Gideon went into the house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from, the, from an ephah of flour. This was no small thing because they were lacking what? Flour. <laughs> Midianites were taking it all. 
So this was the sacrifice. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put on a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on the rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes and the angel of the Lord. Then he did what? Now, this is what Gideon was afraid of before, that he would just what? Disappear. (laughs) But he has a pyrotechnic show before he leaves. So he, he not only commissions Gideon, he knows Gideon has very little faith, if any. He's scared to death. So he brings his sacrifice and he says, go ahead and pour the broth on it. And then he consumes it completely. How does Gideon respond? He's got more faith now. What does he do after this? He says, we're we're told after the angel vanished, verse 22, then Gideon perceived that it was the angel of the Lord. (laughs) Yeah, right. And now he says, this was the angel of the Lord. No one does that to a sacrifice unless they're God. He goes on and he says, and Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. So he believes he's seen God face to face and he thinks he's going to what? Don't miss the narrative. So, So Gideon's, He's convinced this was God. This wasn't just an angel. And what happens if you see the face of God? You die. So he's afraid he's gonna die. But the Lord said to him, peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not what? Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is what? To this day, it still stands at Oprah, which belongs to the Abazarites. What's happening here? Well, this story of the two altars, the first altar is a picture of how God is the reconciler. Gideon was a pagan. At this point, he was an idolater. He did give some loose verbiage to being a follower of Jehovah, but he was just as much of an idolater as everyone else. His father, we're going to see in just a second, has all these idols to Baal. But who approaches Gideon? Who approaches his people? The God of what? Peace. The God of Shalom. Folks, we, we, we try to remind ourselves, but you were not born at peace with God. And some of us this morning, we're still not at peace with God. We're not talking about peace of God, having a placid spirit that's under the control of the spirit. We're talking about God's holy wrath against sin that must be dealt with. There must be peace. There must be shalom. There must be amnesty. There must be forgiveness. There must be propitiation. All these wonderful words we looked at in Romans. Yes, you remember that? So here God is the one who comes to the altar. He sees the sacrifice. He consumes it. And what does Gideon realize? I should have died because I've seen the face of God, but the reason why I didn't die is because God has made what? Peace. So my question for you this morning is, are you at peace with God? Simply the way that happens is for you to understand that God in his great love for the world sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to live the life we haven't lived for 33 years. He never lied, he never stole, he never had a wicked thought, he never had a wrong thought, never a wrong deed, never a wrong word. And that righteousness is yours if you believe that when he was dying on the cross, it was for your sins, not his own. And then his resurrection is God's grand exclamation point that you now can be declared righteous. Peace with God. 
The question is, have you believed it? I've said this to you before. One of my great concerns every Sunday, this is the little horror I have as I lay my head on my pillow, is I can't be at peace with God for anybody except myself. I'm the only one that can receive this gift of salvation. You're the only one that can receive this gift of salvation as well. So today, again, I want to commend you to trust in Jesus Christ where you can have this peace. Folks, think about this. To be at peace with the God of heaven, can there be any greater at peace? There's none. To know that the God of heaven looks at you and says, there is no more wrath, no more wrath in your future, no more punishment for sins. Your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. This is that God of peace. He is the Lord of peace. But once he's justified, and we don't know that this is his conversion. We do know he was a man of faith. He's included in Hebrews 11, so we believe he's a believer, or Gideon is. But now he's going to be assigned, first of all, to deal with some idolatry at home. And all of us who have unsaved relatives know that some of the most difficult people to try to share Christ with is unsaved relatives. Because they know you so well. That might be part of the problem. But when your daddy's got idols, big ones, that everybody in the community knows about, you've been told by the Lord, go take those down. Now this is a moment where it's going to take a lot of courage, and that's what Gideon doesn't have a lot of. What we're told in the the passage in verse 25, that night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and second bull, seven years old, so take his bulls and go and pull down his own altars, his own idols. The altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God, the top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it when? Okay, give him credit, guys. (laughs) This is not easy. At least he did it, okay? The the, the angel didn't say when he had to do it, if it was daylight or if it was nighttime. But I want you to see what happens is there's going to be dealing with the sin problem. Gideon, here's how we're going to rescue you. You're going to start at home. You're going to walk into your dad's little temple, this little makeshift temple, and you're going to pull down the, the idols. And that's exactly what he did. People in the community hear about it. They bring, they bring it up to Joash, and Joash is now asked, what should we do with your son? Verse 28, when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal? Again, this is one of those moments of sarcasm. Don't miss it. He's essentially saying, if Baal's really a god, he can probably defend himself. And that's where he goes on to say, in verse number 31, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he's a god, let him contend for what? himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jeroboam. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. 
Folks, the point of these two altars, I don't want us to miss it. I put a very long quote there for you because I want to remind us that the idols that we have today are more often in the self than on the shelf. And I think sometimes we come to idolatry and we hear about the God of fertility and Baal was a very wicked God and that's how they thought they got their crops and they got their, all of their blessings and the wine would flow if Asheroth and Baal um, conjugated, this would happen. And so they had all this prostitutes. And so sometimes we think, yeah, that's, that's just, that's so out there. But folks, think about the gods that we bow down to, the gods that capture our hearts. I mean, what right now is capturing your heart from loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? That would be your bail. We're way too easy on ourselves. When John the Apostle said in one of his epistles, keep yourselves from idols, he wasn't just talking about the trinkets on the shelf. He was talking about lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He was talking about these desires of our sinful nature for possessions and position and prominence. All of these, we feel the tug, don't we? Listen to this quote by Michael Wilcock. I know it's long, but but just look at it. If you don't have it, listen to it. The gods have not changed, little g. For human nature has not changed, and these are the gods that humanity regularly recreates for itself. What does it want? If it's modest, I just want some security and comfort and reasonable enjoyment. If it's ambition, that's the idol. I want power and wealth and unbridled self-indulgence. In every age, there are forces at work which promise to meet our desire, whether political programs, economic theories, career options, philosophies, lifestyle options, entertainment, programs, all having one feature in common. They promise that they can make our lives better than we can make them ourselves. Yet at the same time, they appear amiable, amiable, amendable to our manipulating them so we can get what we want without losing our independence. Here is the enemy among us. We say we worship the Lord, but the world has crept in and controls our heart. So before we talk about bad old Israelites worshiping Baal again, I hope we'll all leave with the spirit of, Lord, show me the Baals in my life. Show me the idols that I've allowed to capture my heart and affection over you. I want you to notice, though, in verse 33, that this Gideon who was fearful turns into somewhat of a mighty warrior, but it's not because he got some courage. Right? I'm thinking of, of the Wizard of Oz there. He, he's, it's not because he got some courage. Look what happens. The Spirit of God comes on him. Look at verse 33. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of Jehovah clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abazarites were called out to follow him, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him, and he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. What happens when the Spirit of God comes on a fearful, faithless man? He has power that he would not have had any other way. We see this all through the scriptures that the Spirit of God is able to equip His people. And now as God's people, the church, 
We are indwelt by the Spirit of God. So can God use little old, medium-sized East Brandywine Baptist Church if they're filled with the Spirit and controlled by the Spirit? Yes, he can. What are we among so much? What are we among a nation that has all but forgotten the God who many of our founders were very clear that that was the virtue that we were building this country on? What are we among so few? Or so many, what are we as so few? I'm sure Gideon wondered that, but we're told in Acts 1 verse 8 that before they were commissioned to send out, they were already been commissioned, but before they were to go out to spread the gospel, they were to wait for what? The Spirit of God to indwell them. He will empower you. One last thing, and this is probably the most famous part of this chapter. It's setting out that fleece. Now, those of you that have been in church a long time, you probably heard somebody say, if you're struggling with a decision, you need to set out a fleece. Now, if you haven't been around church for a long time, you're like, what is that? <laughs> well, here it is. Look at verse number 36. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it's dry all over the ground, which wouldn't happen with normal dew, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just one more. Please let me, and here's the next word. What's the next word after please let me? Test. This word, when used for the people of God or those that are not the people of God, testing God is always in the negative. Let me test you just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and all the ground around it be due. And God did so that night and it was dry and the fleece only and all the ground there was due. So should this be something we all do? When you're up against it, you don't know what your decisions should be, should you set out a fleece? Now, maybe not a literal wool piece of wool that you ask God to either make wet or make dry, but is this something that God's people should regularly do? Is this being commended? I, I want to suggest to you that this passage is not being commended. This is not like Old Gideon, great faith warrior, he places out the wool and he says, God, make it wet, and then he says, make it dry. No, what actually is happening here is his unbelief is being displayed in full feature. He's gotten a messenger from God, and this messenger from God is none other than who? I believe a pre-incarnate Christophany of Jesus Christ, but that wasn't even enough. I would like more signs, God, Give me more. Believer, I, wanna, I want to say to you, I don't believe this is commended. I do not believe this is a demonstration that God's people should set out tests to see if God's really telling us to do this or that. In fact, I believe this is a demonstration of his own unbelief. And we should not look at our Bible or look at our relationship with God like Google or Alexa. Because some of us, we get in a situation where like, I know God's word says this, or I could seek counsel from other believers, or I could listen to the preaching of God's word and the teaching of God's word, but that's not quite enough. I always shudder when I hear believers say, yeah, I, I know what the Bible says, and I've actually 
got that confirmed with some counsel, but, but I'd still like to test God to see if I can get like, you know, if I find that there at that right moment, then I'll know that you're saying that this is the right thing. Believer, do we put so much emphasis on circumstances that we diminish the very words of God? I believe it's a danger right now. You know, the circumstances, I guess God is leading me. Believer, please don't come to this passage and say, Gideon demonstrated for us how to find God's will when we're in a pickle. I want to encourage you to use the means of grace that God and his great providence has given you. The word of God, the spirit of God, the church of God, counselors, men and women who are filled with the spirit, who will give you wisdom. These are the tools God has given you. We do not need to play little magic tricks and ask God to give us little magic tricks so that we can be confirmed about something he's already revealed in his word. So what do we learn about Gideon? He wasn't asking the right what? Questions. And today, perhaps, we need to say, Lord, I've started to connect the dots, and I want to ask you if this particular deprivation, this particular pain, this particular trial or suffering, is it your loving discipline to rip away the idolatry from my life? What should we do in response? Repent. Not just regret, as we see the people of God regularly doing, but repentance. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we praise you for your glory and goodness. Gideon's not the hero of this chapter, nor are any of the judges the heroes of any of these chapters. We praise you for Gideon. We praise you for the trust that he did have in you. But we praise you that despite his weak faith, you used him in a mighty way. And we ask, Lord, that you would fill us as your people with the Spirit of God. But we also ask, Lord, for a holy searching of our hearts this morning. We pray, as Psalm 139 tells us, that the Spirit of God would search us and know us and lead us in the way everlasting and point out any evil way. And we pray, O oh Lord, that there would be repentance, perhaps this morning, of idols that have captured the heart, captured the mind, captured the life and the direction of choices that are being made, all because of a passion that is of great, much less than your glory. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.